Consequence Podcast Network. Oh, so I don't really know what to do for an intro bit. Well, I mean, we have that Infinity War thing you talked about. Oh, very true. But I feel like we need to save that for news so we can have a spoiler warning. And also, there are definitely some people out there who just heard me say Infinity War and immediately immediately. stopped the podcast. (laughs) I know, right? We need to just have a loud air horn siren. so, So I guess here is a spoiler warning. There are going to be no real spoilers for Infinity War in this podcast because it about is about television and not about film and not about Marvel most of the time. Yeah. So there is a TV related item in our news thing, but other than that, this is a safe space. No one will be spoiling Infinity War for you in the next hour and change. If you're too busy to see it this weekend, come to us. We'll keep you safe. <laughs> That's fair. And I think that's about as much as we're going to get out of that particular bit. So hey, welcome to TV Party. I am Allison Shoemaker. I'm Clint Worthington. And we have two of our very favorite recurring contributors this week. Um, Say hello, fellas. Hi. And your names, please. <laughs> no, I don't. You didn't tell me that part. Could you please state your name for the camera? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Jacob Aller. And I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. <laughs> Boom. You said that, Dom. You came in. You were like ready. Yeah. You were going to hit it. Listen, I've been I've been working this out in a mirror for days. <laughs> <laughs> well done. You're a big, bright, shining star, aren't you? <laughs> Well, you're all delightful. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to talk about the month in TV. This is our first time doing a format that we'll be doing once a month, the cunningly named Halt and Catch Up, where we talk about our pick for the episode of the month, for the performances of the month, our individual picks in those categories, as well as a couple of things that we missed, because there's just too much damn television to cover it all. (laughs) Um, But before we get to that wonderful stuff, there was some big news this week. Clint, do you want to take us through the news? Uh, The big story was yesterday we got a guilty verdict for the Bill Cosby case. Uh, He was found guilty on all three counts. And I think uh, he's going to serve three consecutive 10-year sentences or something like that. They haven't done sentencing yet, have they? Did I miss that? That's the maximum. That's the oh, maximum. That's the maximum. So, yeah, yeah. So that's the spe- so speculation. Like that's that he can serve as as, as much as that, I think, um, which is huge. That That's a, this case has been going on for years. And I think it's like a really huge victory. Yeah. She um, first filed uh, the I think it was the first lawsuit like 13 years ago. Yeah. Um, So it's a long time coming. I was shocked. um, And frankly, at the moment, I'm not used to being shocked in a positive way about basically anything. Um, And that footage of the women leaving the courtroom in tears was very moving. Yeah, Um, that was haunting. It's like a little hard to talk about, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's all I think it's also interesting in the way that he apparently conducted himself in the courtroom. Yeah. And it's just sort of a reminder that Bill Cosby is an actor. He called the he called the DA an asshole, right? Yeah, 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 that's what he called. That's what he said. Yeah, it was bizarre. Yeah, he was loudly and aggressively insisting that he would not be a flight risk after just getting convicted to dying in jail because, you know, that's on the up and up. 
Exactly. Um, and so I, as a sort of a culmination, not a culmination really, but as a, as a kind of a milestone in, you know, the, the movement that's happened in the last couple of years with sort of calling powerful men in Hollywood to task, I think it's a really nice step. And it's a good it's a good sign that, like, at least something's being done on some level about somebody, you know. Well, is this the first successful criminal action levied against uh, a celebrity? Because Harvey Weinstein just suffered business losses he's been ostracized but and, like the lawsuits are coming but i don't like he hasn't been like arrested or convicted or anything like that certainly since all of this like basically since the me too era has started this is the first um which is nuts because that new yorker story that long overdue new yorker story um with the the women in the empty chair on the cover of the magazine was in 2015. Whoa. Yeah. And it was overdue then. You know what I mean? Like I remember when Hannibal Burris started telling jokes about it. I remember when there was a Cosby joke on 30 rock, which again has been off the air for years. It's been off the air so long that like, we're wondering about how long Kimmy Schmidt is going to be around. That's how long 30 rock was on the air. Um, So it's just, um, I mean, literally decades in the making, and I sort of cannot believe that it actually happened. It's 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 pretty crazy. Um, but uh, there is slightly uh, less solemn news. Uh, there is a, a Stranger Things season three video on their Facebook page that is pretty charming. Uh, I don't know if you guys got a chance to see it, but just announcing that I think like on the twentieth they started the table reads or something for season three. Yeah. So I'm going to go for the cheap pop here and point out that I wrote up that very video for Consequences Sound. What? <laughs> but also, um, I, I do think it's funny that Stranger Things is genuinely at the level of cultural ubiquity where Netflix can run a video that is literally just people sitting at a table about to read a screenplay and people are <laughs> flipping out about it. And there's something to be said for that. I mean, it yeah. looks like from when I was in college, like when whenever the college football season would start for the Oklahoma Sooners, they would show this big hype up video on the Jumbotron before the team ran out for the season opener. And it would just be black and white showing the footsteps. We were like, we worked hard for this season. That was what this video was to me was like, oh, this is a pregame. This is a pregame hype up. They're like, oh, baby, season's coming. I guess the biggest takeaway from it is seeing a couple of the new names that are going to be joining season three, like Jake Busey and Carrie Elwes are joining the third season. I tried to CSI Miami, the episode title off of the script that they showed very briefly. Yeah. And those savvy bastards just have it labeled episode 301. <laughs> Name your episodes, Drat. Duffers. Well, yeah, because I figured as long as as long as they put that out there, someone was going to jump through and be like, enhance. You're right. <laughs> it was me. Yeah, exactly. You're trying to see side that shit. Um, but the best part is the button at the end where uh, where the girl who plays uh, Caleb McLaughlin's six Lucas's sister uh, turns around and says, "Go away, nerds." After dealing with like the the very small tidbits of like, and then Marvel let this tiny thing slip out, and then th- like Netflix let this thing come out of Stranger Things. I am. It's true, but we also wouldn't be a consequence of sound offshoot if we didn't hang on every bit of Stranger Things news that comes out. So, uh, so there is that. Um, Here's a take. I hated it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. There it is. Thank you. Um, I hated it. I just, you know, like I, um, 
love following writers and directors and actors on social media because you get these little glimpses of what they're doing, right? Like just now, as we're recording this, I saw a tweet from Aline Brosh McKenna for Female Filmmaker Friday, and it's just a little tiny close-up of the slate for the first episode of the series that she's co-creating with another crazy ex-girlfriend writer. And that's really cool to me. That's a glimpse of somebody's life and how they go about making something that I love and that's really cool this was like it was like they edited it in iMovie and it was just (laughs) a blatant excuse for like clicks and buzz and then we all gave them what they wanted it didn't feel personal at all it didn't feel um candid it didn't feel like a glimpse of anything it felt like everybody just be cool for two minutes we're gonna film the film the promo video and then we'll go back to actually making the show and there are much bigger problems in the world but i rolled my eyes so hard there we also, go it looked like everybody End was wearing t- the same shoes oh yeah it did it did isn't that isn't that weird were they all sponsored by Nike? I want to see Apparently. the Apparently. Well, you know what? It is striking how easy it is to recognize each and every one of those kids by only the back of their head. I'll say that. Um, but yeah, when the camera flipped upside down, I was like, go home. I'm tired. <laughs> it was too much for me. There we go. Maybe it was just their entry into that meme. Have you guys seen that meme going around? No. Oh, well, it's basically you have your phone by the uh, by your like your mirror, your bathroom mirror. And then you drop you, you drop the phone and you catch it down at the bottom, but you edit it to make it look like it's coming up on the other side. You basically just run it reverse and, and flipped upside down so it looks like it's coming up from where you dropped it from the upside down and you play the Stranger Things music. I have not seen I, this. That, I'm, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. Don't, don't worry about explaining it. <laughs> Basically, just kind of hum hum the Stranger Things theme in your head and then think about all of the strange internet tunnels I find myself in at like two in the morning and then you're there. You've, you've found it. Beautiful. I feel like I am there, yeah. Uh, so what else is in the news? Um, we found out uh, who's hosting the next Emmys and it's Colin Jost and Michael Che. You want another like, hot take? Because that's something else I hate. No, anyway. I... I hate it too. That's the short um, version. You've got Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon on the same show. Why? Like, why? Why? Yeah. It feels why? like the blandest possible pick. Like, especially like anybody else. Anybody. Yeah. Anybody that's I was not kind on of SNL. crossing my fingers Any, for anyone. John Mulaney, but yeah. Eddie Bryant, get Eddie Bryant. Like, yeah. I, I don't. If you, like, I know it's a Lauren Michaels joint, and I understand that. Like, get Adam Pally to do it, man. Yeah, just <laughs> that dude. Will, that dude will fuck up an award show. I'm here for it. Yeah, I dude. just, I, I, I don't understand. I just don't. You know what? As an example, I love Seth Meyers, right? I think Seth Meyers is a damn delight. Why on earth, when you're thinking, man, we need to take a progressive step forward, would you hire another dude? To host an award show, right? Like I felt it then, and I feel it now, and I just right. no. There, it doesn't. You don't have to hire exclusively ladies, but if you're gonna hire two people, you may as well have one of them be a woman, just one of them, right? Just like maybe one of them. I don't, and I'm not looking forward to you know three and a half hours of weekend update either. There, I'm apparently salty today. Um, <laughs> that's my contribution to news. I'm well, tabling myself. The only thing the only thing I'll toss out is that if I'm going to argue one thing for them, accepting that I'm generally in agreement with you guys that I don't know why we required another set of among other things, another set of weekend update co-hosts. It's not even the first time they've done that. But um, if 
there are worse people you could put on, and I actually think Shay and Jost are starting to become probably the most effective Weekend Update team since Polar and Faye left. But at the same time, yeah, it just, it feels like, at best, a willful misreading of the room, and at worst, Lord Michael's going, no, no, these are the SNL stars you should care about, instead of, like, all the ones. Or, if you're gonna get a dude from SNL, let Kyle Mooney do it, because how <laughs> awesome and weird would that awards show be? Oh, no, I was gonna say, I, I agreed with the the idea that, like, they were being pushed on star power alone, like, this is definitely an orchestrated move. This isn't I don't know if a willful misreading or anything like that. I think this is like contractually obligated somewhere in the depths of the SNL verse. Like this is something that they negotiated for. They're like, okay, we get to host stuff, right? We're the hosts. We're host guys. Okay. Yeah. This is our skill set. However limited. Right. It may That's be. all we have. Uh, well, there's one last bit of uh, very minor TV news that I think is funny. Um, so the Royal Wedding's coming up, and apparently uh, they're going to stream it on BritBox, which uh, I know as the thing, the channel you get on Amazon so you can watch classic Doctor Who. Uh, any thoughts from the peanut gallery? I don't know who's getting married. <laughs> it's uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Yeah, it's oh, still happening. It's The Princess okay. Diaries 2. That one. I guess I, so, I was caught up in the other one having a kid, maybe. You know, wake me up when the crown season three comes out. No, I'm very American. I'm always looking out for potential threatening heirs, but I don't know oh, anything yes. about weddings. So let's move on to the task at hand. Uh, we're recapping the month in TV and we have an episode of the month. And it's one that we've discussed before, but I was at a bit of a handicap because I hadn't seen it yet. And Jacob, you weren't there. Yeah, it was a big handicap for me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's talk about the the episode of the month, and our consecutive, our, our collective pick is Teddy Perkins from Atlanta, from Atlanta Robin season. Um, so you guys had already talked about it. You, Allison and Dom, had already mentioned um, all the wonderful things about it. And I, as someone who had only seen the pilot of Atlanta, you you guys reassured me that it was a pretty self contained thing, and I totally agree. And it was it was a great episode of television. This strange sort of chamber horror piece, almost. Yeah, I, I really, really, really dug it. Um, especially Donald Glover's performance, which was really chameleonic and uncanny, which was fascinating. Jacob, what did you think? I kind of disagree that it was a standalone thing, yeah. like a self contained thing. I feel like it's very deeply connected to the season as a whole and kind of like the journey of all the characters, but that's just because it's a big metaphor for the music industry. And all of these characters have uh, over the course of Robin season begun to be like very disillusioned and also kind of having these sober realizations that if they are to commit to this line of work, this is the amount of their soul they're going to have to sell. And Teddy Perkins seemed like the absolute physical reckoning of that with Darius, who is the most metaphysical character well and i guess from that and it was it felt standalone enough to me where i felt i i could tell that it was part of these characters larger journeys especially darius but mm-hmm. it was this isolated journey where it could be self-contained and that it was a single location and um it, the, the character dynamics were limited to that single to like those couple of scenes where he's talking on the phone i really i really enjoyed it it was a it was a work of craftsmanship, which was great. Fucking spooky is what it was. It was yeah, yeah, it's real uncanny. Well, and the way Man. he transformed himself, not just in, um, uh, you know, with the prosthetics and everything, but in performance, uh, that that lilting falsetto where it was like something crossed like late Michael Jack, late period Michael Jackson mixed with like a 
one of the Johnny Depp's weirder characters, like his version of Willy Wonka, almost. Um, it was just such a crazy, crazy performance. Like there was a little bit of Robert Evans in him too, like without that bravado. But um, I don't know. I just the smoking jacket really reminded me of that. Well, he was he was in character the entire time too. Like oh, was he uh, in between takes too? It like really freaked everybody out. Uh, I, I don't have the context of the rest of, of Robin's season and of Atlanta in general. So um, other than that, I thought it was a really nice sort of self-contained Lynchian horror piece almost. I think it's great. I think there's like a there's a little uh, you know, Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe mystery in there. They're like, is there really a brother here? Did they kidnap somebody? Yeah. yeah. Is, what, what What's going on here? And then there's also the, the musical elements and there's the get out, like the the captured, uh, restrained black man in this like weird, like uh, kind of monument to taking black culture. They're like, yeah, my white brother. We we play with all sorts of black musicians. It's like, oh, I guess I guess I'll I guess I'm here. <laughs> and I mean, I really loved Hero Mirai's direction, like especially like nailing all those like little bits of tension. I'm just thinking specifically of that close up of the elevators the elevator floors going down and going down and going down and in the sound design of the basement and just from a formal perspective oh the the nightmare on elm street furnaces and stuff in the basement Ooh. yeah the, the rattling and shaking of the furnaces and then like that completely surreal moment when benny comes out in the wheelchair and uh darius at this point just kind of accepts it as a thing because he still thinks it's part of this psychological game that's being played and then the reveal that they they are in fact two different people is treated as in, in just as surreal a manner yeah it was just a, a soft nightmare of television i had the opportunity um when i watched this episode for the second time it was with my partner and his best friend who had not seen it yet um so i actually spent a lot i mean it's incredibly compelling television so of course i watched it a lot because like who wouldn't (laughs) it's on television i was going to turn and watch it i mean i would say the same thing of like american ninja warrior my focus was obviously primarily on the tv but when (laughs) i wasn't watching the screen I spent a lot of time watching them react to it, and I told them both in advance, once I had seen it, to, for the love of God, just avoid as much about it as you can. Try to go into it blind. You'll really appreciate it that way. So they had no idea. I think they both knew that Donald Glover was in whiteface, and that was the extent of their knowledge. And the elevator moment you mentioned was so much fun to watch because they were both absolutely filled with dread but it was that thing when when you're watching a really good horror movie where you're having a great time being incredibly uncomfortable and it was they both knew right like it started moving they were both like oh it's going to the basement it's going to the basement it's going to the basement and then of course it (laughs) did um and i i think that that is a testament to how how good the craft is because the reason I engaged with this episode, the reason that I find it so worthy of praise and of continued discussion and why it was such an obvious slam dunk choice for us in a month full of great TV um, is all the metaphysical stuff that's going on, the thematic questions, the cultural references, the character development. That's all like catnip to me. And they certainly engage with it on that level too, but they were into it because it scared the shit out of them, like plain <laughs> and simple. And I think it it's a real testament to the writing and the direction and the performances that it manages to be this, you know, 42 minutes or whatever it was of television that... You can appreciate on its own terms for what it is, and then you plug it into the larger world of the show, and it means 
so much more. Um, I just think, I, I mean, it's it's the best episode of television this year oh, so far. Definitely. I think in a walk. It's, yeah. it's, Speaking it's to daring, you. incredibly daring, um, accomplished, all that stuff. Superlatives. Take all the superlatives. Teddy <laughs> Um, but speaking to you, yeah, speaking to the like the reactions aspect of it and like going in blind, the way FX has been like distributing the show to to reviewers is not at all and saying just watch it when it airs and then write it up that night because your website wants it first thing in the morning because we want those tasty clicks. So that means <laughs> I'm watching Atlanta the middle of the night every Thursday. And so... I like missed the beginning of this episode when it first aired because I knew that they air the the, the new episodes uh, twice a night. And so I came in halfway through and I was like, oh, I think I missed it. And then I saw this like weird ghost alien face that I didn't immediately recognize. And I was like, what show is this? <laughs> what did I get myself into? And I was sucked into this thing. You know, my house was dark. It was like the it was back when you were a kid flipping through and you stumble upon a horror movie like right in the middle and you have no idea where it came from or what led up to it or anything. And you just have nightmares about it. That was how I had this because I had to watch the first half of it uh, twice and then I had to watch the back half of it. And I was like, this fucking sucks. This is so scary. But the first time I watched it, I couldn't even analyze it because I didn't even realize it was Atlanta the first time I was watching it. I thought it was just a, a horror movie, like a fucked up horror movie that I found out. Yeah, there's a visceral immediacy to when you're watching it for the first time. And I've only seen it the once, but I do really want to go back and see it again so I can, um, you know, pick up a little bit more of the thematic underpinnings, which I did a little bit um, that, that Allison was talking about, specifically the sort of binary between between Teddy and Darius and the various ways in which they, you know, equate um, or not uh, the, the suffering they faced at the hands of their fathers with, you know, this idea of artistic, you know, sacrifice where Teddy views it as this binary where you have to suffer for your art. And I really loved that line that Darius uh, says he rebuts to be good at life. Great things come from great pain. And he says they can also come from love. And that was just an interesting dichotomy that um, I presume is at least like mildly interweaved in the rest of the season and makes me interested to, to see that. Funnily enough, that's part of just, I think, Darius's kind of ethereal weirdness. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's just something he would say. The The stuff that's far more uh, connected to the rest of the season, I think, is the stuff where it is a man who has been spurned so badly by being adjacent to musical success that he has been corrupted into a kind of, like, self-involved eccentric monster and i think the people around paperboy throughout this season are going through these things where they're having to put off selfishness and and kind of grapple with why they are doing what they are doing in order to not become this actual demon that is flitting around the fringes of the music industry i just wanted to pop in because i do think it's very much thematically tied to the season but i think it's also really playing with an idea that's been humming through especially like the last few weeks where it's the idea of nothing is as it seems 
and there is danger lurking in the periphery of every corner. And I mean, that's really been there with Robin season ever since the very first scene of Alligator Man, where it starts off with this cold open with a grisly drive-through robbery in the aftermath. And I think especially with Champagne Poppy two weeks ago and Woods last week, which we'll talk about a little more in the back half of this episode, you're starting to see this reality creeping in where people realize that they're not only are they not going to have the things they want, but people are just going to keep taking things that they want away from them, where you're almost being robbed. And I think with Teddy, you get this literal example of being robbed of your personhood. But I think the show is really starting to wrestle with that idea. And I think especially if you think back to that interview that Donald Glover did with, I want to say it was either the New York Times or the New Yorker, something like that, something Northeastern. I don't know. Thank you. It was the New Yorker. And he spends a lot of this interview talking about how he's not interested in being a symbol for anything. He's not interested in being some like a paragon of black excellence or anything like that. He just wants to make his own art. And granted, that's a, we can talk about whether that's a little disingenuous coming from the guy who's also about to be in the Han Solo movie. But on the other hand, it definitely calls into the question this whole idea of like, so you want to be famous, but are you willing to make the trade of all the things you're going to have to give away to get there? And not just the things you'll have to give away, but like the things that are going to be forcibly stripped from you even more so. I have one more thing I want to bring up before we leave this episode behind, and which is not to say that we have to transition after I say this, but if we're wrapping up this conversation, which is what it kind of feels like, then I want to put this in there before we do. On that rewatch, one of the things I also really appreciated is that fucking Sammy Sosa hat joke. It's so funny. Yeah. It's so funny. It's such a good joke. It's so funny and it's so smart because it, it just, well, I mean, it makes you Google it, right? Like, I immediately Googled Sammy Sosa hat. I still need to do it. Oh, well, oh, you haven't? Do it right now. Oh, I knew now. about this picture beforehand. <laughs> oh, I was God. just like, oh my God. All right, let's all, Clint, do it now, and let's just It's incredible. Right. He looks like a character from Candyland. It is insane. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, it's not great. Yeah, yikes. Oh, so, my God. So it's... It's a great joke because it forces you to sort of get involved. You know what I mean? Like it's it's as though you're <laughs> At this also point, put on your smelly glasses, right? Yeah. But it's also expertly timed. Like it comes right when I was so freaked out I couldn't take it anymore, and then we get to spend a couple of minutes with Sammy Sosa hat. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> the structure is just impeccable, and it's just. It, that joke I appreciate more and more both for what it is and for what it does for the episode as a whole. Am I crazy? Am I overthinking this? No, no. And I, I actually, good. I really like that scene for showing Darius's very unconventional reaction to what is very obviously a really creepy, possibly life-threatening thing that he's going through. Um, where there's kind of an element of pity, I think, to Teddy a little bit, where, where he, he feels that towards him. And um, while there's a little bit of discomfort, like, I don't know, there's all the best two-handers you know even when it's people on opposite sides of an argument there's a there's a mild kinship there and i feel like well, especially at the end he sort of feels that and darius throughout the season kind of he really bonds with some real weird folks yeah so you know good on him for being able to stick it through yeah, I feel like for someone who was meeting Darius for the first time, I learned everything I needed to learn about him from the very beginning when he buys mm-hmm. the Southern made hat and gets the red Sharpie and turns it into you mad. Any final thoughts? 
Oh, you know what? Let me say this because it's not a TV party episode if I don't talk about costuming. <laughs> really fucking good costuming in this episode too. Um, yeah, like an impressive makeup job, obviously. But the way the in which those mm-hmm. two brothers, yeah, the smoking jacket and the um, and the God, the I don't masking. know, like the the mask, the thing that he's wearing, just um incredibly smart and in particularly in the case of Teddy I feel like you know so much about him immediately the second you see him and it's in part because of that jacket so good job costume designer yes. A+. thumbs up uh so yeah now that we're going to leave that we'll go to our individual picks of the month Jacob why don't you kick us off sure so I think my second favorite episode of the month after Teddy Perkins would be the pilot episode of the Netflix animated show Agritsuko. It is an insane premise, which is a small animated panda from the people that brought you Hello Kitty named Retsuko is a 25 year old office worker. She lives in a single apartment. She has no boyfriend, doesn't really have many friends, goes to work every day. She hates her job. And at night, she goes to a karaoke room and screams loud death metal music about how she hates her job and she's unhappy and unfulfilled. And so the pilot episode introduces this girl going to work, having these awkward social interactions, hating her job, stifling her rage, and then letting it out in a semi-unhealthy way. And it is everything I need from an office place sitcom. Yeah, it was, it's such a beautiful workplace comedy that takes place in the strangest possible world. He, She literally has a chauvinist pig of a boss. And then and there's all these little things like, yes, it's broad and big and, and, and um, over the top like a lot of anime is. But uh, I think in there, there's also some interesting insights about um, the specific pressures that women go through in the workplace. The extra pressure to keep up, like especially I keep thinking of there's a there's these two like powerful women in the company who she always like fawns over when they're walking past and they look so effortless and beautiful one is a beautiful gorilla and one is a beautiful bird of some sort yeah some sort of eagle like thing wearing a wearing a jacket but uh yeah and as soon as they round the corner you find out that they're just they're having just as much trouble they have to go through so much effort to like to make it seem effortless and so it you know having those little nuggets of of social insight in amongst this really funny aggressively death metal focused uh workplace comedy is great and she doesn't just sing death metal like at the karaoke place like occasionally once once things bubble up you see inside her mind and she's screaming choke on my rage and yeah it's just really fun and the episodes are short it's like a really short and sweet show it's like 17 minutes long and like four of those minutes were a long instagram joke about being very petty towards people that you hate at work (laughs) yeah about being like uh, yeah, they're just, they're just as fake as you think. Don't worry, I hate them too. And it's just like, nice, yes, this is what I needed. Yeah, Affirmation. Exactly. <laughs> yes, uh, latte, thigh shot, uh, book, you know, yeah, and just going through the person's Instagram. Yeah, it, it's great. Dom, what's your pick for the month? So I'm going to stay good and on brand here and talk about wrestling. And what? in fact, it won't even be the last time I fan. talk about wrestling in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is new information for like anybody who's never met me. But even then, I'm pretty prominent about this on the Internet. So I don't know what to tell you. Um, but anyway, I wanted to touch briefly on the HBO documentary Andre the Giant, which is kind of re- stretching the premise of TV party. But hey, whatever. It's on a television. Um, but I wanted to touch on it because 
because I think for the most part, it's really successful at being what it's trying to be, at least to the extent to which it can be. To elaborate on that, it's a great look at not only Andre's life and times and really situating you in the era in which an Andre the Giant could rise to the prominence that he eventually did at like a national and even international level and in a pre-internet time at that. And I think it does a good job of trying that out. It does a great job of acting as kind of a rolling functional history of professional wrestling in the United States before the WWE existed back in the days when it was very regional and very territorial and very segmented. And Andre was kind of a superstar that back when the territories were doing all kinds of shady shit to get at each other's throats, Andre was a star that transcended that. Everyone would put their bullshit aside just to have Andre in their town because... Again, in a pre-internet world, no one had seen anything like Andre the Giant. This was back in an America where people would come from miles away just to see a guy do what was, by modern standards and even kind of by the standards of the time, not a particularly great style of wrestling. But he was a spectacle. And, I mean, there are little quibbles I can take with it, namely that, like, part of Part of the downside of the doc is that because it's a WWE co-production and it has so much access, you're also getting like the Vince McMahon approved version of the Andre stories. Like they talk about his drinking and they talk about the era a little. They don't talk about how everyone in Andre's era of pro wrestling was like roided and coked up to the gills. I mean, watch any Ultimate Warrior promo on YouTube and you'll get a pretty good taste of that. But I think it. Now, is this where Macho Man Randy Savage? Yeah, he would absolutely is he, fall is he in one of those. Boys? No, he would absolutely I don't know fall much about in this like. era. And he was always among the more agile guys of the time, but there was still very much like. I mean, again, watch any old Macho Man promo, and it's also like cocaine became sentient and wore a pair of visor shades. That's why I was asking. I was like, that dude is, I, I, when I watched the YouTube video of him, I could feel him vibrating through the internet and I felt like my bones were going to Oh, absolutely. And honestly, like it's wild going back and watching the first couple WrestleManias because the era from WrestleMania, like one to three is what's mostly covered in this doc. Like at the very beginning of like a nationalized one company pro wrestling, essentially. And Every single guy on those shows has one of the most revolting bodies you will ever see in your life. And that was the wild thing about Andre. Like, yeah, he had acromegaly, but he was head and shoulders above a bunch of guys who were eating steroids like they were Tic Tacs. And there's something kind of amazing about the fact, like, even now, people are still awed enough by Andre to make a documentary about him. So, yeah, I just, I thought it was a really engaging look at... And an incredibly niche subculture, but also at a really sweet guy. I got to catch bits and pieces of it. It was one of those things that I put on in the background. But uh, yeah, from what I could tell, it was it was a fairly like interesting overview of the man himself. And uh, although uh, it was very strange, I think it was the first time I'd earnestly, intentionally watched anything that uh, 
Hulk Hogan was in uh, since the whole Gawker business. So it, it felt a little weird to see him there just like carrying on like nothing had happened. Yeah, that's tough because you cannot tell the Andre story, at least not in America, without Hulk Hogan being an integral part. But also, I'm not super into anything that brings him closer to making a grand cultural comeback. Yeah, yeah, let's let's not make that happen uh, unless he just ends up being the villain of the Expendables 4. Who knows? I feel like he's headed that direction. Allison, what is your pick of the month? Well, my pick of the month is very recent, um, and it was a hard month to pick one thing for because April was a great freaking month for television. There's good stuff all over the place. Um, I went with this week's episode of The Americans, The Great Patriotic War, which as a result, I'm going to stay pretty vague about um, because, you know, spoilers and stuff, and I don't want to ruin anything for anyone who hasn't gotten a chance to see it because, God, it is really worth it. Um, It is like Teddy Perkins, one of those episodes of TV that um, someone has decided needs to be extra long. Um, And a great piece has been making the rounds this week about why it is that quote-unquote prestige TV shows feel the need to shed um, what TV has done forever, which is mostly stick to how long they're supposed to be. Um, My DVR would really appreciate it if, if we could limit the number of television shows that are going beyond their allotted time but whatever um it earns it because it's one of the best episodes of the americans ever the best of the season so far i reviewed the americans over at RogerEbert.com in a prior review and we stopped the screener stopped at the episode before this one so it was the first one i've seen all season where i was seeing it for the first time as it aired uh and it will just knock the pants right off you it focuses in pretty great detail on the relationship between Philly Philip and Kimmy um and the writing does a great job of sort of holding that up in contrast to what's going on with Paige and the result is something that's deeply unsettling um and I'm not sure how much I want to say about it beyond that great performances um some really messed up sexual dynamics where you can't in one case, really tell what it is that's going on and what is honest and what's not, which is pretty par for the course for the Americans. It's extremely violent. It's pretty shocking, incredibly well acted, and features some of the best drunk acting in TV history from Margot <laughs> Martindale. So if I haven't made you want to watch that by now, like I'm not sure what else would convince you to hurry up and watch this episode. Maybe we'll talk about it more next week. Um, but it's an hour I don't want to spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. Has that, have any of you seen it yet? Am I the only one? No, don't watch mm. The Americans. I have not. Uh, I think it, it is uh, more of a disappointment to you and that you don't <laughs> get to see that hour. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'll take my chances. Fine. Okay, fair. That's fair. Um, I, got, well, anyway, I got a lot to do. Yeah, That's true. Too. There's a lot of fucking TV out there. Well, I if you have seen it by the time you're hearing this, I hope a lot of you have... Um, Please find me on Twitter and talk about it because I just my my partner is a couple of seasons behind and um, I just need someone to talk to about this episode. So please don't leave me out here alone. Um, come talk to me about Philip and Elizabeth and the calculator and talk to me about Kimmy in the car. And yeah, spoil it for me on Twitter. I won't mind. And watching <laughs> hockey 
come on, just come talk to me. Anyway. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, my pick is something that you have seen, Allison, and it is the first episode of the second season of The Handmaid's Tale, which I believe just dropped today. I think the first two episodes dropped. I've only seen the first, um, but boy, does it make an impression. Uh, in case you're interested, uh, I believe our very own Kate Kolzik wrote a nice piece on The Handmaid's Tale for Consequence of Sound uh, that you can find over there. But uh, much in the same way that Allison didn't put too much detail in that episode for the sake of recency and everything else and also because i think we may end up talking a little bit more about the episode uh, later in this podcast but uh yeah the first episode really really comes in with a bang like it's uh, you know the handmaid's tale is uh i feel like it's got a little bit of a reputation as a show that's very hard to watch because it is very brutal and unrelenting in its depiction of this terrifying um misogynist patriarchal dystopia and the end of the first season we saw you know elizabeth moss getting carted off into a truck to destinations unknown and we f- we see what's going to happen in that in the b- very beginning of this episode and for the first 10 minutes it's just almost literally it's a death march and it is just terrifying to witness and somewhere in the back of your mind even just in this first sequence you're like they they, they have to be able to get out of the situation right but you th- there's an incredible sense of tension and suspense because you don't know how and by the time the new status quo gets established in this new season they sort of go back to business as usual but there's a lot of different dynamics at play I, bl- I feel like Elizabeth Moss which we'll get into later is able to do a lot more with Offred not more but just like she's able to um, show a little bit more defiance and she gets different stuff to do in in a lot of ways the handmaid's tale is back and it's not like a huge status quo changing thing for what the show is but i think it sends us off in a really nice direction i am a little bit less concerned about spoiling this one these episodes um came out bright and early on wednesday morning 3 Uh a.m Good old 3 a.m. Hulu release time. Ah, uh, yeah. They also, if uh, you are were unaware that the show is back, you should know that Hulu broke a little bit from tradition, and instead of releasing three episodes on the day, they released two. So you can currently watch both this episode, June, and the second episode, Unwomen, um, which is similarly really good. I am always very impressed by the performances in The Handmaid's Tale, not just of Elizabeth Moss, but of the ensemble as a whole. And Dowd gets a lot of really good stuff in this episode. Yeah, she's a she's a treasure. I was slightly less into this episode um, than I think Clint was. I this is a show I cover weekly at the AV Club, and I think I gave it a B plus, which mm-hmm. is a B plus by Handmade Standards, which is really an A for a lot of other shows. But mm-hmm. um, I struggle a little bit with the um, the show's insistence on painting with very broad strokes uh, I could have done without the Kate Bush as an example um, for oh, those yeah. of you who've seen it you'll know that and I feel like there were a, a couple of little structural issues um, the scene with the commander and the commander's wife sort of blew a hole in what was otherwise a very tense ongoing episode for me um, but what was most interesting was the way that the show was looking at how best how easily it is to take even something that seems like a problem, um, someone's rebellion, say, and use it against them. Because in the first half of this episode, Aunt Lydia manages to take what a, a rebellion that Offred led that I'm sorry I'm gonna call her June now the show is calling her June um it's weird to call her June because she's offered in the book so she's been offered forever in my brain but 
the show's calling her June, so I'm going to call her June. Anyway, this rebellion that she led where all of the handmaids dropped their stones and refused to kill Janine and turning it against them, first by terrifying them and then by traumatizing them and then by taking the leader of this rebellion and making her seem like a sellout, like the enemy to all of the people that followed her. And um, it's like the most fucked up obedience training you can possibly imagine. It's different ways of saying the same thing, which is don't do this or there are going to be consequences over and over and over again, relentlessly for the first 20 minutes. And I found that to be incredibly effective evocative and upsetting which is pretty on brand for the handmaid's tale yeah very true I, I, it was just so compelling to see the way ostensibly the kind of the emotional climax of the first season get turned on its head and suddenly it's it doesn't feel like a victory anymore and no matter how defiant and more more confident in her defiance um june feels it feels like any effort she makes it's like a chinese finger trap like you no matter no matter how much you pull away um that makes it even tougher to really you know, make any headway. And so, yeah, the ways in which, you know, we see, you know, the, even the stones they dropped, they use as a form of punishment. The other cool thing about this episode and particularly about the next one is that in some ways the show still has a lot to use from the books. There's a lot of stuff that they skipped and didn't really get into in detail. Some things that were alluded to in the first season, but never really said explicitly stuff like that. But the book ends with the line that is the last line that June has in season one. Um, and I step up into the darkness or else the light. Um, that's where the book ends. There's a, a sort of epilogue about where the handmaid's diary was found um, because the book covers it as though it's being read in a class or presented at a seminar. Um, But other than that, that's the end of June's story. We do not hear anything else from her. Um, In this first episode, we see what happens when she steps into that van. And then in the second episode, we go into the colonies, um, which is something that's alluded to in the books. You hear about it, but you never actually go there. So it's uh, incredibly thrilling to see the show move so boldly in that direction and was very encouraging as a person who was interested in the idea of going beyond the world of the books, but a little bit hesitant. Um, I think it's a really positive sign of what's to come. So I'm super excited about the rest of this season, particularly when we get back to Moira, played by Samira Wiley, <laughs> who you'll be able to read an interview with on Consequence of Sound this week. So yeah, now that we have our picks of the month out of the way, we can take a short break and then we'll be back with more uh, Halt and Catch Up. And we're back. Uh, We are rested and ready and ready to talk about performances. We wanted to highlight not just great episodes of the month, but also great performances of the month. And uh, we actually had a little bit of trouble at first trying to pick a consensus because it's a wide world of TV and we've all seen different things as as our picks of the month has has shown. So uh, we actually have two different picks, don't we, Allison? Yeah, there was a wealth of great acting on TV this month. We're going to talk about a lot of really great things. Um... And we're going to miss some other really great things, but I'm very excited about our two picks, both of whom I hope get nominated for Emmys in the coming months, one of whom almost certainly will, but I'm really hoping for the other one as well. Um, So our first pick is Brian Tyree Henry from Atlanta, who does not play a huge role in Teddy Perkins, but who sits at the center of another great episode, um, which I unfortunately have not seen yet. So because my life is bogus and full of garbage and I've been doing nothing but 
film screenings this week. And I sat through all six hours of Infinity War. So um, I'm going to yeah. turn this over to the two people who have seen and loved this episode, Jacob and Dominic, to tell us a little bit about The Woods. On that Atlanta beat every day. He's in The Woods and he's also in the episode that aired just last night, uh, which I don't know when this is going to come out. So I guess it was on Thursday the 26th. Uh, it was called North of the Border. And in those two episodes, it is a complete rock bottoming of Paperboy from earlier in the season where he got a haircut and he was just like dragged around and just being shamed and embarrassed and like all of these, all, all this disrespect. This is his Rodney Dangerfield season. Woods captures him in this pure, almost like a stage play where he is kind of wandering in these very isolated environments, meeting these weird characters and having to bounce off of them and having them break him down and having to reflect after these encounters. And at the end of it, he comes out of the woods a much different person than when he went in. And it is a fascinating episode of somebody coming to terms with the growth that they're going to have to do and the person that they're going to have to become in order to meet meet their goals. And just to add on to that, because we've already talked quite a bit of Atlanta this week, I just think in Henry's case in particular, you really get a lot of Paperboy very specifically through his performance. And that was true last season because a lot of his little gestures, like I think about the Zan episode from season one, where his angry Twitter fingers are the best gag in that entire episode. (laughs) And I think Brian Tyree Henry has such a thorough command of who Paperboy is and what makes him tick that all of the little moments work perfectly. Like even that button at the end of Woods where he takes the selfie in the convenience store as his teeth are covered in blood and he's beat to shit. You get that weary exhaustion. You can still see a little tiny sliver of the guy who really likes that he's on the come up. And I just, I think there's so much nuance in that character that comes out of that performance. Yeah, Brian Tyree Henry is someone who is, you can tell, has definitely tolerated his share of fools in his time. Like, coming up as an actor or just in his personal life. Like, that dude's seen some shit and he's rolled some eyes because he man, he can make frustration come across so easily and so perfectly in in every different way where it's like, I want this to be really funny. I want this to be really deflating. Everything comes out of these like really depressed eyes. Well, and he, he has a funnier theatrical sigh than almost anybody else I've ever seen. It's kind of wild. Does anybody but me watch This Is Us? I think no, I watched the one episode that was on after the Super Bowl and I was like, it's just fucking crazy. (laughs) I think I'm good. (laughs) it is fucking crazy he um has a great guest stint in the first season of this is us that where he's so good that i literally did not recognize him as being brian tyree henry it was just like i i just forgot that it was an actor at all and didn't actually realize it until i went to check the cast list to figure out who it was that played that part that was so good um this is us is not a show where you can just drop in and watch one at a time, really, especially that Super Bowl episode. I can't even imagine. But um, but if you ever want to see him play a completely different role in equally winning fashion, uh, Memphis from the first season of This Is Us is out there waiting. For Does you. he seem like rested and happy and like fulfilled yes. in some sort of way? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. That seems um, like quite a departure. 
he's like a person you immediately would want to sit down and have dinner with. Like he's just a, he's a delight. He's like a beacon of warmth and light. It's really, it's I mean, something else. I want to sit down and have dinner with Paperboy, but that's just because in all of my white male <laughs> confidence, I'm like, we're going to be friends. It'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> totally. And oh my God, he would hate me. He would just hate a hundred percent and it's fine. I feel like I know him best recently from uh, the episode of Drunk History he did where he played Barry Gordy uh, in the tale of the, the origins oh, of Motown. Awesome. And he I was great. I haven't seen that one. Oh, yeah, it's really great. fun. Yeah. Well, our other performance of the month is maybe the most obvious choice, but it uh, just can't go, can't pass without comment. So uh, yeah, let's yeah. give it up for my second favorite Scientologist, Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> The star of The Handmaid's Tale, who mm-hmm. won a well-deserved Emmy last year, which is really saying something because she was competing against a lot of equally thrilling performers, although ideally it would have been like a three-way tie between her and Carrie Russell and Carrie Coon. But we can't always get what we want, so Elizabeth Moss worked away with it. She is also walking away with this season of The Handmaid's Tale so far. While her story is split in the second episode, uh, Unwomen, with... Um, I guess this is a spoiler, but mild spoiler with um, Alexis Bledel's Emily, who also does a really great job. If you ever told me that oh, that Rory Gilmore was going to be central to the success of a TV adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale, I would have told you you were insane. But she's great. Anyway, Elizabeth Moss. Can we circle yeah. back to Scientology yeah. for a second? Because that caught me pretty off guard. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Elizabeth Moss is my second favorite Scientologist. I'm guessing the uh, first it's a is short list. No, the first is Beck. Well, that makes more sense. I guess that makes more sense than Elizabeth Moss because at least Beck didn't star in a show that seems like it would really deconstruct Scientology. Like that's what my question is. It's like, does she not? Is she not? Does she self-aware? Is she? Yeah, is she like getting it? No, and I'm not. Obviously, she doesn't talk about it. She's been asked about it. She does not talk about it. Oh Um, boy. She. I mean, she talks about the show in great detail but yeah she does me too (laughs) i'm sure she's fine yeah beck and uh elizabeth moss have something in common in that they were both born into scientology um which does not mean that we shouldn't you know question what is going on with them and um their Mm -hmm. ability to speak up or not um but i do think it is a complicating factor anyway yeah um elizabeth moss is a scientologist in case you didn't know but she is insanely good in this episode in unwomen um which sees her wandering around um her new home essentially without going into detail or spoiling a lot and a significant percentage of it of the episode is silent and we are just watching her observe her environment and figure out what happened to the people who used to work in this building yeah i mean it's masterful um it's a masterful performance from one of tv's best actors what did you think clint even in the one episode i've seen um one of the reasons that june works so well is obviously because of the performance of the titular character she's finding so many different small things to do i think one thing i love about the handmaid's tale is the way it's filmed and especially the way the camera studies 
uh, the characters' faces so often. And for a character who, by necessity and by the by the rules of the society, has to largely stay silent, uh, Elizabeth Moss has to do a lot of heavy lifting, like you said, through silence and just with her face. And we might have alluded to this in the Mad Men episode, I'm not sure, when talking about Peggy, but I feel like Elizabeth Moss is one of the most expressive faces on television. And because she can convey volumes with just a single look. And especially here, where she gets to be a little bit more defiant, especially in her scenes with Aunt Lydia in the first in the first episode of the season, uh, where she's refusing to eat and um, having to negotiate the levels of defiance she can get away with without putting herself or her baby or other people in danger, um, while also dripping acid from her voice, uh, even while she's saying the things she's supposed to say. So yeah, even just those little bits of performance are just mesmerizing. And I think a lesser actress would not, this, this show wouldn't be half as good without her. Here, here. Yes. Let's um, jump into our individual picks for performers of the month, because this is also a really good lineup. I love Dominic's choice. Dom, take it away. I had a, sh- a pretty substantial shortlist for this, actually, to the point where I was kind of surprised. Mostly I'm proud of myself for like actually watching a television again, so thank you, TV party. But also... Um, Mine is Bill Hader (laughs) as the titular character in Barry, because uh, of all the new mid-season shows, it is by far my favorite debut. I I have been all about that show from the jump, because first of all, I can watch movies and TV shows about bad actors trying to become professional actors until the cows come home. And Barry opening up with um, one of the characters hamming the hell out of Julianne Moore's monologue from Magnolia in the drugstore is such a great joke that feels like it was specifically written for me that I could do cartwheels about it. And... I think what really makes that show work, particularly the tonal balance it's swinging for between gritty violence and um, a lot of the broader comic strokes... A lot of that is coming from Bill Hader's performance, because whereas people like Steven Root and a lot of his co-stars are sort of falling distinctly on one end of that spectrum or the other, Hader's performance is really compelling because he has to be a guy who is, I'm trying to do the Tropic Thunder thing here, so bear with me, but he is a guy playing a terrible actor who is also playing an assassin trying to be a terrible actor, and you have to believe him in all of those modes. And I've been getting like a distinct gross point blank vibe off of the show, but executed far more successfully, because whereas that movie really struggles tonally when it goes into the darker and more violent aspects of its story, Barry nails those down because there's a grit to the brief action sequences that really makes the stakes feel genuine. No, I I completely agree. I mean, he's giving such a layered performance. And I think one thing I love about his performance is that you can learn so much about Barry without having to go into reams of exposition because by virtue of everything else, he can't really say anything about where he's from. And the show isn't interested in you know, showing us flashbacks of his military career, but you see his demeanor change whenever he's speaking to uh, Fuchs or even like the the old army buddies that come along with him to the party or that he meets at the party. And um, and one especially like another great thing that I'm loving about Bill Hader's performance is uh, you can see him 
I don't know. I'm always kind of proud of him for picking up the action beats. Like there was a, an episode recently where they stage a raid on a, on a, on a smack house. Basically it's, it's weird seeing Bill Hader do call of duty a little bit, but even there are elements of that performance, like little nuances in the way he carries himself in that, um, where you see, you know, this otherwise goofy guy engage in these, um, moments of brutality, which we saw in the pilot too, when he unloads on that car. And so he can sell that, unsettling violence as well as he can the awkward comedy bits. I absolutely agree. And I think one thing that really works for that is that I've always found Hater a really handsome man, like in a way that the SNL never really drew attention to. In like an unconventional to. way. Yeah, yeah, but like when I saw Trainwreck especially, I was like, I absolutely buy him as a romantic lead in a rom-com wholeheartedly. And I think what's super interesting about Barry is it kind of plays on that. Like he's this really handsome guy who is just not at peace in his own skin for layers of reasons and I think it's a really interesting use of his physicality both by him and the show yeah he's using this opportunity to kind of deprogram himself in a sort of way where he wants to escape this restrictive life that he is um fitted himself in but but hater perfectly sells like the baby steps and the the foibles that come with trying to become a person again um especially there's a scene in that same re- episode that we talked about where they're doing a, a scene from Hamlet and he finds himself defending, oh no, he's, they're, they're doing Macbeth and he finds himself identifying with Macbeth and lashing out of the acting class who are summarily dismissing the idea of, of of killing being anything a moral person could do. And so you see him wrestling with that moral conscience uh, that he's trying to develop, that he hopes that there's a way back for him. And Hater sells that stuff so perfectly without it going into like heart-wrenching pathos or anything. Especially with as the show is starting to go on and to really get deeper into the fact that like he Barry is a killer. Like it's easy enough to like take him as an affable guy because you recognize and generally appreciate Bill Hader. But the really wild thing is when you see like there is this savagery in him. And I agree, like I really like that the show doesn't put too fine a point on that, but it's definitely there. It's always a little bit present. Hater is a great performer, but I also look forward to the time that we end up talking about NoHo Hank, because as much as I love Bill Hader, uh, he's right now, honestly, probably my favorite character on Barry right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's one of those HBO shows where like every fringe character is someone you want to spend a half hour with at some point. I could watch, I mean, hell, I could watch an entire series about Henry Winkler's acting teacher, and I'll tell you right now, I want a copy of that book. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I want that to be HBO joke swag for the second season more than anything. <laughs> so yeah, Bill Hader, he's fantastic. Uh, Allison, what is your pick for performance of the month? I am going to continue to blow this horn and talk about Sandra O oh and Killing Eve, one of my favorite shows right now, um, maybe my favorite new show of the year. Uh, and her performance is just extraordinary. It's so funny and weird and um, delightful, and it just gets better and better. Uh, the episode that aired last week gave her a chance to do something um, a little bit, 
I guess, darker, not that it isn't dark already, um, but it went to a really scary, ugly place in one of the most frightening scenes um, of the season so far and <laughs> that I've ever seen on BBC America, I guess. Um, I love pretty much anything that gets Sandra Oh in front of my eyeballs. Um, when she left Grey's Anatomy, that was pretty much it for me. I'm so glad Caroline still loves it, but um, that sort of ended any interest I had in that show. Um and she's one of my favorite parts of Sideways, even though her role is really small. So I think that she's just a delight. But this is the best thing I've ever seen her do. If you haven't checked it out yet, I really encourage you to do so. It's a great example, like Bill Hader, actually, of finding a way to walk a line that blends comedy and acidity and pathos and empathy. Um, it's an incredibly fine needle she has to thread, and she threads it really marvelously. Uh, I've talked about Killing Eve a lot on the podcast, so I'm going to keep this brief. Uh, but please, please, for the love of God, watch it. Um, I could easily have picked Jodie Comer as well. But Sandra Oh, she's my queen. I'm so excited about Killing Eve. Jacob, who did you pick as your performer of the month? I picked someone who is probably a little, she, he's a little acidic, a little uh, full of pathos. It's not like that at all. Uh, it's the guy that played Judas and Jesus Christ Superstar in the live version. His name is Brandon Victor Dixon, and he... Stole the show with his glam as hell Judas that blew away John Legend of all people as Jesus Christ. Um, and how fitting in a performance in a in a show that is all about kind of the shadows of of idolism that Judas was the person that became not only does he have the best songs, but he performed it the best because this dude was like he came from he came from the States. The dude's got a Tony, I mean, for producing, but he's got a Tony. But he being able to hold his own with John Legend, who didn't do a bad job. He's doing a fine rendition of songs. But like the costuming choices on Judas, the guy's stage presence, the charisma and like the pipes, the pipes, they're calling. But he he came from uh, he was Aaron Burr on in, in Hamilton after the original Aaron Burr left. He, I can't remember who played him first, but when he came to Jesus Christ Superstar, he was the big stage guy that they brought because Sarah Bareilles and uh uh the 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 old the old the old rock man Allison Cooper or not Allison Cooper Alice Cooper yeah <laughs> Alice Cooper <laughs> sorry I got Allison on my mind <laughs> but he's like the big stage guy he's the guy who is supposed to be like the driving motor of this thing where if everybody else's pop pipes don't necessarily stick this guy has the meaty engine that can push this thing along and then they dress him up like this goth sex prince with just like chain mail and gold and leather all over him. And it is incredible. He was by far the best part of that show, which was already a great show. I couldn't agree more. I think that that whole cast was pretty much dynamite. Um, and again, the costumes, my God, the costumes. Mm -hmm. um, but I was re just really grateful to see Brandon Victor Dixon perform um, because who knows when we're going to get to see him in a musical like that again uh, because I can't fucking afford tickets to go see him when he's in Hamilton or when he's in anything else, right? Shuffle along, I missed. And yeah, so I, it was just such a... Tremendous performance. Um, I hope that he got a lot of vocal rest afterwards. I hope that he was able to just not speak for a couple of days because, man, he really left it all on the floor. But Well, in um, terms of like when we're going to see him again, I think this, if anything, gave him a huge springboard into like he is going to be cast in a lot of things. 
Oh, I totally agree. I meant specifically in a musical. Uh, um, well, I mean, like, please, for the love of God, let's keep putting him in these live NBC musicals. But just put him in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Oh, my God, please. Yes. Rachel, if you're listening, can you can you snap up Brandon Victor Dixon, please? I would really love that. Maybe we'll get to see him at the Tonys. Uh, Sarah Bareilles is one of the two hosts for the Tonys. Oh, so really? maybe she'll well, like, yeah. maybe she'll bring in her co-host or uh, uh, her co-star. It's her and Josh Groban are co-hosting the Tonys. Josh Groban, very charming man. Yeah, I'm really hoping that we get a little crazy ex-girlfriend there, but I think that's a long shot. Anyway, awesome, awesome pick. Clint, who was your pick for the performance of the month? Uh, never let it be said that I miss an opportunity to go full turbo nerd. Uh, I've mentioned the show in the past uh, on TV party, but I'm still going to stand for Parker Posey as the rebooted Dr. Smith on Netflix's Lost in Space, which is a show that, you know, I had probably unreasonably high expectations for, but I still think turned out pretty solidly. And I think one of the reasons it works so well is because they managed to update what is, you know, on its surface, a really creaky 60s mincing Iago character into something um, that's equal parts menacing and darkly comic and really wily and interesting to watch. And so much of that is due to Parker Posey's performance. It's nice to see her like, you know, work in in genre, which I think is something she doesn't usually do. Like having her just Parker Posey in space is enough to sell me, but also put her in the in the role of this Machiavellian manipulator who uh is takes as many opportunities as possible to take advantage of a really horrific interstellar situation every scene she gets it's it's a very meaty lost ben linusy role where she gets to have these long drawn out scenes where she corners one character and sort of gets to the heart of what makes them tick so she can leverage that later or finds a way to uh, manipulate two people and pit them against each other. And she has a great monologue halfway through the show when um, Mild Snydell, or I don't think any of you have seen the show, but there's a point at which the robot is disassembled and she is going to reassemble it to uh, serve her own ends. And she's basically having a monologue uh, in the mountains to this robot uh, because this is the one time she can finally tell the truth. And even then, she's like, the truth is, I'm not responsible for any of the bad things that are about to happen. And uh, it's chilling lines like that that she sells so perfectly. There's like this emptiness to her eyes. And uh, and in the meantime, speaking of costuming, Allison, we've mentioned this before, uh, but the salmon-colored jumpsuit she wears uh, for the majority of the show is just chef kiss. It's, it's beautiful. And so I really hope that enough people paid attention to the show that Netflix doesn't cancel it and we get a second season because now by the end of the season she's fully situated in this dynamic of the Robinson family and I want to see more of her doing this crazy thing she does so well. She is a a needle. Like every role I've seen her in she is a needle. Whether or not she is like uh-huh. uh, supposed to be a warm and the needling is kind of tangential or if she, like that's the cold heart of the character, every time she just like finds a nuance and a way a particularity to get under whoever's skin she needs to get under. And it's so perfect. I love her so much. 
I really wish more people had paid attention to it when it came out. Well, I am a big Parker Posey fan, so while I didn't pay attention to it, I promise to in the future. <laughs> uh, speaking of things that we may have overlooked, uh, one of the downsides of having a zillion great TV shows out there to say nothing of even more just acceptably good TV shows and some delightfully bad TV shows. I see a deception. Uh, I want to take a second and talk about what we might have missed. This is going to be pulling from basically anything we didn't cover on the podcast this month. Uh, So we've got a lot of variety here. Clint, why don't you kick us off with a great thing that we fucked up and didn't cover in the month of April? (laughs) Sure. I think I might have obliquely mentioned it in one podcast, but um, much in the same way as I feel like Superstore sometimes gets swept under the rug in discussion of really great sitcoms that while uh, they're conventional in nature, they're just by sheer virtue of their performers, they're really excelling. Uh, LA to Vegas is a show that I'm really really, really um, on board for, uh, forgive the pun. Uh, It's just one of those things where you come up with the idea of putting Dylan McDermott in the pilot seat as a overconfident, almost Ron Swanson-like airline pilot and trying to depict the everyday foibles. Like it's a workplace comedy that takes place on a plane, which you'd think would be really difficult to pull off, but they've actually assembled a really great ensemble led by McDermott as this blustering, foolish, mustachioed airline pilot, Captain Dave. But then also everyone else in the cast is great. Peter Stormari is there as uh, as Artem, as this like wily uh, Russian gambler. And then Ed Weeks from Mindy Project is there basically playing Ed Weeks, but he's really fun. I feel like I'm watching 30 Rock again in terms of it being like that constant joke machine where every 30 seconds there's a new quip or a new bit of wordplay that I actually really, really dig that catches me off guard and I'm not expecting. So I, I really hope that people aren't sleeping on it and uh, can actually tune in because it's 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 fantastic. And it's also the show, if for no other reason, watch it because it's the show that recognizes the Dylan McDermott, Dermot Mulroney confusion and has them cast as rival pilots. So, but I still don't believe you <laughs> is the thing. Okay. Cause that show looked so bad. The previews for that show looked like this is going to be because some NBC like comedy pilots. Oh, they just, oh, they fade away. Oh, they're gone. Oh, they had a couple episodes. This looked like it was going to crash and burn, uh, which is fitting with its mode of transportation. But and, you're and telling it, me it's it, good? Yeah, it, it has become good. I, it is a little shaky in those first few episodes, but it is one of those lucky shows that I think a few episodes in finds its footing. And I think it's halfway through its first season now. And now it's kind of firing on all cylinders. Um, I was as skeptical as you were. Like, I literally turned it on because I was running out of stuff to watch on Hulu. Um, and it was in my suggested. I'm like, I might as well watch it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think the ensemble is really finding some nice dynamics. Um, the writing is getting stronger. It's getting smarter and quippier. Like, so yeah, I, I, I was skeptical too, but I mean, even just turn into any rant, tune into any random recent episode and see what you think. Cause I actually think it's, a, I guess I can get behind. Yeah. It's that. like a decent joke machine. Basically. It's a joke delivery system. No comedy show is good in the first two episodes. Maybe, maybe two, maybe two comedy shows are good in the first two episodes. Yeah, maybe. That's my pick. Check out LA to Vegas when you get a chance. So yeah, uh, but Jacob, while we're on the subject, what is your pick? My pick is about the opposite of your pick because it's not in the air. It is in the frozen sea. It is not funny. It is horrifying and and scary and humbling. And you can't just drop in at any time because it is a long crawl across the Arctic. It is the terror on AMC. And it is an 1800s 
expedition to find the Northwest Passage. It's a bunch of character actors who have interesting facial hair. They are all dudes. They are having a terrible time. Their ship gets frozen in in the passage that they were trying to get, and it's lodged in this, basically this big ice flow. And they're stuck. And then things start to go poorly because they find out something is after them. Something from Native American, uh, not necessarily their mythology, but like a combination of both like mythological elements and cultural elements and sort of the personification of like, you shouldn't be here, white dudes, like you're fucking with nature and you shouldn't be doing this. And so that is coming for them at the same time that interpersonal relationships start to break down and military hierarchy starts to break down. And so you have a lot of interesting elements boiling at the same time in the same pot. And it's also very fun because I like history and I like to see everybody's uh, fancy period outfits and their goofy technology that they had to use back then. I am so glad that you picked this one, Jacob. Have you read the book? I haven't, but I am 100% going to. So am I. I've actually got it on my Kindle, but I'm specifically saving it because I don't want to watch it all. Like, I don't want to watch it all at once. This is not a show to binge. Do not binge the show. Oh, I binged it. I watched it all at once and it was, it fucked, it fucked me up oh. for a little bit. Cause I was just like, I looked at colors, uh, after I stopped watching the show, like I went outside and I looked at colors <laughs> and I was like, oh fuck, where did all these come That's from? So and I was like, look, it's the Midwest. How, how nice. I, I could wear like a, a regular <laughs> coat and I didn't have to have fur touching every part of my, my skin so I could survive. It was incredible. That's amazing. I uh, am specifically waiting. Um, I, if you are a subscriber to any sort of cable situation where you have AMC, um, apparently the whole thing is available now on their website. Um, but which I'm assuming is how you watched it, Jacob. Yeah. Uh, I watched. I watched screeners because I am a. Yeah, you're a fancy uh, a boy. Fancy boy, a genuine <laughs> fancy boy is is what they call it in the terror. I wear my captain's hat while I watch, and I have my pet monkey on my shoulder, and I drink heavily. Well, if you do not have access to screeners, um, you can watch the whole thing on AMC's website. I watched, I think, the first four in screener form, um, but I'm sort of letting the rest of them roll out as they may. Oh man, after season four, it's like right when it pops off, though. Oh, well, don't get, I mean, I loved it from the beginning. I think that oh, the terror okay. is okay. So it's, brilliant. it's good from the beginning. It's a little slow, I would say, because it, by its very nature, is a bunch of dudes stuck in ice. Like, it's not going to be a fast-paced show. But about season four, or episode four and five, shit builds up enough that things start to break. And the things, the embers that have begun to uh, ignite just kind of crumble and their and their dust falls over everything and, and, and starts to really screw with things. It's great. Well, that sounds like fun. Well, I to, in general, I just want to second this recommendation. I think it's really great. We actually did cover this last month, not on the podcast, but on the site. Um, so if you're feeling like reading something about the overwhelming power of dread, you can find a piece on the Americans and the terror and how great it is to know the ending when something is really deeply fucked up um, at consequenceofsound.net. Um, I think it's actually called The Americans, the Terror, and the Power of Dread. But uh, yeah, I'm so glad you picked this one. 
who's your favorite in that giant roster of incredible character actors Ooh. with fancy outfits and elaborate facial hair? I who's your favorite? I like the guy who, I don't know the actor's name because I'm terrible with actors. The only actor's name on that show I know is there's like Syrian Hines or however you say his first name and Jared Harris. But there's an actor on there who plays a guy named, I think his name is like Good Fellow or Good Man or Good Boy. But he's just like a very saintly doctor with nice eyes and nice sideburns. He's just trying his best. But every time they're like, uh, uh, Dr. Good Boy? Like, <laughs> I just presume good he's just played sir. by a good sir. <laughs> I just presume he's played by every a dog. Hear, he's just Mr. Good Boy. Oh my God. Every time they say good sir, I'm just like, oh, it's, it's uh, Dr. Nice Boy. Dr. Nice Boy's <laughs> here to save the day. And he's so sweet. It's, uh, I just, I can't wait for him to be corrupted and killed by this harsh environment. That's Paul Reddy, by the way. Well, he's fantastic. I learned from another podcast I'm on, uh, because somebody delightfully called me out for it, that it's Kieran Hines. So that's, it's Kieran. I learned it. I love the terror so much. I'm so excited about that pick. I am less excited about Dominic's pick. Take it away, Dominic. Well, that's disappointing to hear because it was. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. You you got me once. You can ha- you'll have me once a year yeah. on this one. Yeah. So I thought it was at least very sweet of the two of you that when we were scheduling out this episode and we were talking about what was your favorite thing from the past month, you allowed WrestleMania to be on the list, and that warmed my heart. But WrestleMania was in fact not even the best WWE show of WrestleMania weekend. That honor goes to my pick for the television you missed over the past month, NXT TakeOver New Orleans. For the uninitiated, real quickly, NXT is basically, like, think across of a televised farm system for WWE's main roster, but also it's kind of Triple H's fantasy independent wrestling fed because he basically just uses WWE money to buy every talented indie wrestler currently working and put them all in the same show and make the action figures slam against each other real fast. But um, TakeOver was fantastic and I'm a big proponent of NXT because it, it's presented much more like a sports show than main roster professional WWE wrestling tends to be and it's much closer to the kind of local wrestling that I enjoy going to in my spare time because like Clint I'm also a turbo nerd just in a different direction and I what I love about NXT is that not only is it presented more realistically but it's a return to the character based in-ring storytelling that American wrestling was kind of built on particularly in the 80s and the early part of the 90s but done really really well and presented with a grit that works for it for the most part because when I say grit it means like hard hitting in-ring action when I say grit it also means a litany of really bad new metal songs and all the match packages but hey I buy the t-shirts at Hot Topic, so you take the good with the bad, and I know where it's all coming from. And, like, the target demographic is not me, and I acknowledge that. But just the same, like, TakeOver was great top to bottom because, like the best wrestling shows, it had a little bit of everything. You want crazy ladder shit? That's the opening match. You want a violent blood feud that ends with a dude being choked out with a knee brace? It has that. If you want to see some high-flying stuff, if you want to see a women's championship change hands based on chokeholds, it has that. And the point is, like, I'm not going to sell anyone in 
including, I'm sure, the three of you, on throwing this on. But if you're listening at home and WrestleMania maybe got you curious, I would definitely check out TakeOver New Orleans because I think it's a window into like another very modern but very different style of pro wrestling that you might find more engaging than the John Cena type. I don't know. And also with this, I promise that now that April is concluding, I will stop coming on TV party and finding ways to talk about wrestling. It's just April is WrestleMania month. So I've rung this chamois for all it's worth on COS and elsewhere. Now, have any of the New Orleans wrestlers been on Scooby-Doo? I can't say that they have. Why do you ask? Uh, that's the only reason I know who John Cena is, so... Oh, yeah, no. Like, pass. these these are not household names. These are the household names of tomorrow, if anything, and that's kind of the whole shtick of NXT, but... Wow. That <laughs> sounds like a Jetsons, like a Jetsons ad. It really, it really is. <laughs> I want to see that. I want to see the sci-fi wrestling. Yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> well, and honestly, if you want, like, weird fantasy sci-fi wrestling, long as I'm here, there's another show called Lucha Underground on El Rey, where luchadors <laughs> in canon are actual dragons. Um, the main champion of at least the first season is a a man who survived an earthquake and kept a stone of the rubble from the earthquake that killed his family and it makes him more powerful every time he's killed in canon. Point is, Lucha Underground's fucking awesome and if you've watched wrestling Wait, ever... and you, is wrestling good? Kind of right now and that's why I'm always talking about it like a jackass. <laughs> mm. I was gonna say, with the dragons, you've got my you've got Honestly, my attention. Honestly, Lucha, Lucha Underground is what happened if you took a bunch of comic book writers and were like, stage a wrestling show. And I honestly, it's like one of my favorite things on That's TV, beautiful. and I mean that. And when season four premieres later this year, well, shit, there's my promise. When season four of Lucha Underground premieres this summer, I'll be back on TV Party to talk about wrestling. Sounding the clarion call. Uh, that's beautiful. Uh, thanks for that pick, Dom. Allison, what is your pick for what we missed? I am going to go with the lovely Kenneth Lonergan penned Howard's End adaptation that is airing in four parts on Stars. Uh, there's one part left to go. It's um, one of those, speaking of like very good looking people in elaborate period costumes, it's one of those. Um, it's absolute costume porn in a way that really appeals to me. But more importantly, it's a story of these two incredibly complex women and the turns their lives take and the people they encounter, male and female, um, led by a really wonderful performance by Haley Atwell, who could easily have been my pick for the performance of the month. Um, the first episode centers for the most part on her relationship with a character played by Julia Ormond, who is also incredible. If you like Pretty Clothes, it's a great pick. If you like Kenneth Lonergan, it's a great pick because it's that kind of, um, intuitive empathetic writing that you can expect from him where he finds reasons to um invest in the emotional life of pretty much every character you encounter even if you only meet them briefly uh there are no uh shallow pools here um there's a great comic performance in this from the male half of the end of the fucking world um so if you liked that show it's worth tuning oh he's in. great i love him yeah he's he plays the the little brother uh if you've ever seen howard's end the film um you'll know that there's a lot going on because we're dealing with it in four parts instead of one movie they go even more in depth and i'm finding it incredibly enjoyable 
thoughtful, smart, funny, and very sad, uh, but not in a Handmaid's kind of way. So yeah, if you're a Kenneth Lonergan fan, check it out. If you're a Haley Atwell fan, which I am, check it out. Uh, if you just like good television, check it out. It's great. I sort of can't believe that we didn't cover it. I like it so much. But again, peak TV. I also think I remember that kid as the teen version of Christopher Robin in Goodbye, in Goodbye Christopher Robin. For some reason, that's the thing that I keep coming up with. I remember him as the actor my girlfriend looked up to see if he was of age uh, when we watched Into the Fucking World because she had a crush on him before <laughs> he cut his hair and uh, wanted to make sure he was street legal. Okay, <laughs> to give herself permission, that's good. Mm-hmm. He was also in a Black Mirror episode that I didn't like, but I liked him in it. It was the one with like all the blackmail, the internet blackmail. I believe he was the lead in that. Oh, yeah, that wasn't a very good episode. <laughs> but with a cast that stacked, I do want to check that out. Um, but uh, now that we've covered what we missed, we should talk about our picks for next week to keep on brand. Uh, Jacob, why don't you take us away? What's, what are you looking forward to next week? So next week is the premiere, like right next week on, on Monday, is the premiere of a documentary series called James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction on AMC. And it's a six part, one hour each series where James Cameron grabs all of his famous buddies. He gets, you know, your George Lucas's, your Stevens, your Stevens Spielberg, all of them. And he talks to him about what they love about sci-fi and kind of all of the tropes of sci-fi would be it aliens or space travel or time travel or monsters. Guillermo del Toro shows up for a little bit and they drill down into what these subjects mean and why we as fans are fascinated with them and what they can tell us about movies. And they interview a lot of academics. There's a guy I actually was a graduate assistant for here at DePaul in Chicago. He's uh, one of the subjects that they interview about sci-fi. He's like a, a, a 50s movie buff, like a B-movie buff. And they talk about like how these shows and these movies serve as metaphors for everything, for all of our deepest fears that we might not even consciously register, you know, for the nuclear scare, the, the, I don't know, other things that like giant monsters could represent, um, losing our autonomy in things like invasion of the body snatchers, stuff like that. And they have a wide range of people they talk to, people who are creating contemporary science fiction and people who are historians of old science fiction And they have like people like Will Smith. So you get like a big bunch of folks talking about stuff that you're a fan of. (laughs) Nice. Uh, So that's on AMC? It's on AMC. It's really uh, surprisingly good. It's basically like taking a, a grad school class over science fiction. Nice. I love getting deep academic dives into sci fi mm-hmm. stuff, so I should check that out. Uh, Dom, what is your pick for next week? So, my pick is actually going to be something of a relief for me because by far my two most watched things on Netflix are John Mulaney's New in Town, followed by John Mulaney's The Comeback Kid. I think it's some of the best stand up of this era, and I will genuinely make an argument putting both those specials up against any other hour that's been put out by a prominent modern comedian. I think he's fantastic. I love that very writerly kind of stand-up, which means the debut of his new Netflix special, Kid Gorgeous Live at Radio City, is probably going to be an absolute blast. It's coming out on May 1st, again through Netflix, and I haven't watched anything about it because I want to go in as cold as possible, but I just, I couldn't be more excited for it. And I'm also going to, like, run this into the ground as well until, like, my friends and family are annoyed by it. (laughs) <laughs> perhaps but no i think that's a great pick like I, i'm also a huge fan of the other netflix specials he's done and so I'm, I'm looking forward to that miss allison 
What's your pick for next week? Oh, I'm going to stay pretty on brand here, um, but there's no way for me to not talk about this since it's coming up. Without fail, one of the best episodes of every season of RuPaul's Drag Race is the Snatch Game episode. Uh, it's the first for- episode format that Drag Race came up with that took off and became its sort of own magical thing on the Drag Race All-Stars tour. They do a Snatch Game, for those who are unfamiliar with it. It's basically Match Game, only the queens do celebrity impersonations as the panelists and then the actual contestant sometimes it's a guest sometimes it's um someone who just pops in for that segment sometimes it's a guest judge it varies um but it is a chance for these performers to show the impressions they can do but far more importantly their quick-wittedness it really separates the wheat from the chaff on the show which means even when a snatch game is not particularly good the episode is still great because man watching somebody completely flame out is very compelling. Uh, I have a feeling that this cast is going to be pretty good at it. This episode is also going to feature, I think it looks like it's maybe going to be some coaching from one of the show's best loved winners, Bianca Del Rio. So all kinds of reasons to get really psyched. Um, And I just can't wait. I imagine that there are going to be some great impressions and some terrible impressions that are still funny. Uh, If you have never checked out Drag Race, Snatch Game is a great time to do it because you don't have to know shit other than that people are going to pretend to be other famous people. And it is delightful. Um, Please watch it. My pick is a show that I've championed off and on uh, throughout TV Party. We mentioned it, especially in the lead up to its premiere, but it is the season finale of Good Girls. And it's a show that I've been sticking with week to week. It's actually, I mean, it's really, really fantastic. I mean, the, the main three leads obviously are, are are nailing it, but also they've built up this beautiful supporting cast of Matthew Lillard and Nick Hornsby, Rickety Cricket. He's also doing all kinds of really fun stuff. And even Allison Tolman has joined the show uh, later in the season. But uh, the season finale sees all these different pieces fall into place as as the titular good girls sort of decide to make a move to either like establish their place in this newfound criminal underworld that they're introduced into, at least to just stay out of prison or at least like uh, save themselves from being assassinated by this gang leader that uh, they've sort of, uh, you know, run out of patience for. And I, I think it's really going to be the culmination of a surprisingly nuanced and deceptively funny show um, that I feel like not a lot, not as many people are watching as I wished it was. I believe it's on the bubble. Um, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing at least like how this first season will turn out. Really you know, it, I watched one episode it. and I was like, Oh, this is a good show. And then I was overwhelmed by every other episode of TV. Yeah. This feels like a victim of that oversaturation that happens with TV where like even great shows get buried because there's just no time. It's also an environment that greatly favors drama over a great sitcom any day. It's true. And this isn't even so much a sitcom, too. This is like almost like a slight, like a, a much lighter Breaking Bad. Um, it's not overtly comedic. There's it's it's a dramedy, you know, and uh, so they're able to find those witticisms. But there is some serious stakes. Yeah, I'm just looking forward to seeing how that turns out. And I really hope that it gets renewed for a second season. And so if for no other reason that I'm invested in the ride, I'm looking forward to the season finale of Good Girls. Well, I think that is an excellent pick. 
that is a thing you will see next week, just as you will see us next week, because this is the end mm-hmm. of the episode. Thank you so much to Clint and Dominic for being here. Thank you to you all for listening. You can find us on Twitter at TV Party COS, on Facebook at facebook.com slash TV Party Pod. If you have a question you'd like answered or some thoughts about, oh, I don't know, the most recent episode of The Americans, please talk to me about it. You can reach out at TV Party at Consequence of Sound.net. Now's the part where we say all our individual shit. You can find me on Twitter at Allison Shu and my writing at Consequence of Sound, at the AV Club, at RogerEbert.com and elsewhere. Clint? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Alka Hollywood, and I'm also the editor of the film website Alka Hollywood and co-host of the podcast of the same name. You can find that at AlkaHollywood.com. And you can also find my writing at Consequence of Sound. And I'm also the co-host of Nathan Rabin's Happy Cast, which you can find at NathanRabin.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jacob Aller. Uh, you can find all of my work at jacoballer.com, but you can mostly find me writing at sci-fi, uh, like the TV show and also at pace magazine where I'm their TV critic. You can find me on Twitter at D Suzanne Mayer. I don't know why I sound so uncertain when I said that. I know where I am on Twitter, more or less. Um, you can find all of my stuff on Consequences Sound as the film editor there. I am omnipresent on the site. I'm on this show fairly regularly now, it seems. And also, just as a quick cheap plug, it's still about a month out, but on June 8th, we're going to be premiering the second season of the Consequence Podcast Network show Filmography, of which I'm the host, and we're going to be talking Stanley Kubrick, so look forward to that. You can leave us a review on iTunes, Podchaser, Google Play Music, whatever your podcast platform may be. TV Party is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Chicago, Illinois, and recorded and engineered by this one guy, Clint Worthington. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thanks to you for listening. Bye. Bye. Consequence Podcast Network.